What does a book like Joshua really have to do with us today? Far more than one might think. When we look at the book of Joshua, I invite your attention to this fact. What the church needs today, what the world needs today, is a Joshua experience, much like that scene in the last chapter of this book. We'll be focusing on the last few verses of Joshua 24 in just a moment, but let me tell you something. A couple of weeks back, I preached from Joshua and the beginning of the book. And at that point, I said that Joshua is the Ephesians of the Old Testament because it dwells, it talks about the blessings of God's people. It talks about the fact that God's people are in conflict. There is a battle going on. That was true in the time of Joshua with Israel, and it's true with the people of God today. But not only is the book of Joshua a lot like the book of Ephesians, the book of Joshua is a great deal like the book of Romans. I'll show you what I mean in just a second. But I'm going to ask Brother Terry, if he would, to get his copy of God's Word and read what I think is really the key verse in the book of Joshua. Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45. Joshua 21, 43 through 45. And Brother Terry, I'm going to stop you while you're reading it, okay? Whoa. Thank you. The Lord gave to Israel. God has a people. He always has a people. God gave to Israel. If you would continue, but get ready to stop quickly. Stop, please. God has a people. God has a place. Continue to read through it. I tell you what, read through it all the way, and then we'll just start again. How's that? Notice the number of times that little word all is referred to. God has a people. God promised the people a place. And he promised to provide for them, to bless them. And you think about it when you read Joshua 21, 43 through 45. That's exactly what God's doing. He's given over all the people, the enemies, to our land. We're able uh, to our hands. We're able to settle the land. We're able to move in. God has blessed us. When you really think about it, isn't that exactly the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and other places during Abraham's life? He would have a people. 
The people would live in a certain place given to them by God. God would provide for them and protect them. And God would have a program that would take place through what he was doing within Israel. That through Abraham's lineage, one would come who would bless all of the peoples of the world. It's a rich statement. And we see something of its power and God keeping his word. God swore. You heard Terry say that a couple of times. God is keeping the promise that he made to Abraham long ago. Now, I said that this book was like Romans, and it sounds like just a history book so far. Don't think that way. While there's words to be studied, history to be studied, archaeological terms to be dug up and looked into, all that's important, but I want you to get the big picture of Joshua, and the big picture of Joshua is the big picture of the book of Romans. Stay with a finger or a bookmarker in Joshua, but turn to Romans, and let me show you what I mean. Romans chapters 1 through 11. Romans 1 through 11. Get the big picture of Romans. It's what God has done. What God has done to save sinners. And some of the most beautiful, rich terminology expresses what God has done to save sinners in Jesus. And you can read about that in Romans chapters 1 through 11, right? Now here's what you do. Go to Romans 11 and look at verses 33 through 36. Having elaborated on God's great blessings, on God's grace, on God's provision of Jesus for our sins, in Romans 11, 33 through 36, Paul just has to burst out into praise about how awesome God really is. Now notice what follows in chapters 12 through 16. Eleven chapters of blessing and grace. Praise, 1133 through 36. And then chapters 12 through 16. Application. How we have a responsibility... To live faithfully in view of what God has made possible in the first 11 chapters. Here's how we ought to live in a God-honoring way. You got it? But smack in the middle of that is that burst of praise remembering God's goodness and grace and how he's taken care of the people and how that just what we need is given in Jesus. Now turn to Joshua. And what I want you to see is that's exactly what Joshua's about. Joshua chapters 1 through 21 are about God's grace and rich blessings. Every single one of those chapters, even when the children of Israel do wrong, they are reminded that God is holy and that they need to turn around and think about how good God's been and how much He's blessed them, getting them out of Egypt, bringing them to the land to promise. God is gracious. Just a couple of quick examples that show what these 21 chapters really are all about. In Joshua chapter 1, 
Moses is dead. For a guy who's dead, he sure mentioned a lot in Joshua chapter 1. You talk about though dead yet speaking, he left a big shadow. And who would be the next leader of God's people? Joshua. But you know what God says to Joshua? He says, I will be with you just as I was with Moses. Isn't that what he says? Gracious provision. And you should meditate on my word and not let the book of the law depart from your mouth. Think about it all the time. Make sure that the people do as well. What is that but grace and goodness? I'll be with Moses. I'll be with you just as I was with Moses. Look at Joshua chapter 2. And really, what a gold nugget. Because in Joshua chapter 2, there's a woman by the name of Rahab. Rahab lives in the land that the people of Israel were to take. The land of Canaan. Her occupation might make her somewhat questionable in the eyes of many. A harlot. But here is a harlot. Here is a woman who is a pagan, a pagan land that was going to be given to God's people who knows something. And she knows something about God's power and God's grace. So much so that she wants to be counted among God's people when Israel takes the land. That's grace. Joshua chapters 3 and 4. It's kind of like Midland was two, three weeks back with all the rain that we had. They were going to cross the Jordan River, but the Jordan River was like Wadley, overflowing its banks and then some. How would the people get across? God provides for them to get across the river into the promised land. How do you account for that? God's been good and gracious and has blessed us so much. Now you come to Joshua 21, 43 through 45. And Brother Bill, since you love Romans so much, I just got to tell you, Joshua 21, 43 through 45 is Romans 11, 33 through 36. They just got to stop and think about all the things that God has done and how he's kept his word, how he's brought us to this point, how he's been so good to us. And you know what the people should have been singing right outside the promised land? Great is thy faithfulness. All through the years you have been with us. We have not deserved such goodness. Then you get to the first few verses of chapter 24. I love history, but there are a lot of people who don't. But I think that this is amazing. He covers 600 years of history in 13 verses. If you hate history, that's fast, isn't it? That's that's just about right. But he covers 600 years of history in 13 verses. And in these first 13 verses, look at the sections. Verses 2 through 4, he talks about the patriarchs. We'd be talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. When we get to verses 5 through 7, he reviews ever so briefly historically the exodus and the wilderness wanderings. In verses 8 through 10, here's what he deals with. He deals with how that God had been with them and provided for them up to the time that they would cross the river Jordan to go into the land. And then in verses 11 through 13, historically he says this. Get the history snapshot. History channel, biblically speaking. 
He talks about the victories that they had achieved in taking the land. And 600 years of history are just kind of summarized, encapsulated, given to us in really brief form. Talk about hitting the highlights. And all of it's about what God has done. Notice the repetition of I, God, in this section. That brings us to what we'll be studying a little bit more in this last part of Joshua 24. It's a series of statements made by Joshua. Four of them. Four statements that Joshua makes and four responses by the people. Remember, all Israel's gathered at a place called Shechem. Joshua 24 and verse 1. God's got something he's going to be saying through Joshua. They really need to pay special attention. They're going into the land to take the land God has promised. All right? In the first couple of verses read for us by Brother Tim a few moments ago, there's a demand. There's a demand to follow through. Because God has been so gracious and good to you, do what He says. Trust Him. More about that momentarily. But here's the response of the people in verses 16 through 18. Far be it from us to do anything different than you're saying. Everything you're saying, Joshua, we are wholly committed. We're all in on this. You know, a preacher gets that kind of acknowledgement. You know, somebody responds and they say, I'm all in. Publicly, they're saying the right things. Far be it from us to think any different. God's done all these things. And if you read verses 16 through 18, everything they say is good. And then Joshua says in 19 and 20, wait just a cotton-picking minute, you will not be able to do what you're saying. You make sure that you really have thought about the cost of following God and being faithful to Him. Consider the cost of commitment because He's holy. He is just And he will punish people who sin being blessed the way that we have. Because with great blessing comes great stewardship and responsibility. And Israel says, we promise. Cross our hearts and hope to die like they used to a long time ago. That if we don't keep our word, uh, man, we, we are with you, Joshua. We're with you. Joshua says, no, I don't really think you get this. Verse 22 that I don't have up on the slide, but I just wanted to make sure you're paying attention. He speaks again. Joshua says, hey, if you really are, will you be a witness to the effect That you will serve God faithfully. In other words, will you acknowledge, confess, this is what you're going to do. And that way everybody will hear what you're saying. And they will be witnesses against you if you don't follow through. They say we're okay with that. These statements, these responses, go through about verse up. 24 or so. Let me talk with you now. What does real commitment look like? What does real commitment to God look like? How began the lesson? The book of Joshua 
has a lot to say to us far more than we might think. What does real commitment look like? Four necessities. Necessities of real commitment number one. Real commitment is logical. Logical. It just makes sense. It seems to be the response that just should be natural. Look at how verse 14 begins. It begins in most translations with a word like therefore. So Kyle, based on all the things that God has been doing because he's so good and gracious for 600 years on behalf of his people, it only makes sense that you should be faithful and true to him. This commitment is real and genuine and authentic. It makes sense. Now go back to Romans. Joshua is like the Romans of the Old Testament by faith. Possess the land, enjoy your blessings. Go to the well-known passage in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Real commitment is logical. It is the only common sense response to a God who is loving and good and cares. It is God's mercy and love and kindness that make Him a God of grace. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. Now the passage out of Romans. I plead with you, therefore, by the mercies of God, present your body as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, your common sense, your logical service. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you might prove the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Being committed to God makes sense because God is good. Second necessity. Look again at verses 14 and 15. Real commitment to God is exclusive. Exclusive. Not only is real commitment to God logical, but real commitment to God is exclusive. When you look at Joshua 24, 14, and 15, notice the word serve. It's found seven times in two verses. I couldn't help but smile and think about Joshua 24 is almost like a case of chicken pox when it comes to serving the Lord because the term serve is found at least 18 times in the chapter. Seven times just in verses 14 and 15. God wants people to have an exclusive commitment to Him. A logical and reasonable commitment that involves their heart and soul and mind and energy. Mark 12 and verse 30. And really the choice that's to be made when you look at verses 14 and 15. Choose the true God 
who for 600 years of our history has been so good and gracious to us and seen us through or choose the non-gods that so many others choose. What's the choice? The choice is between the real and the temporary. The choice is between the true God and non-gods that often compete for the status of Lord in our life. Catch this. I imagine that just like today, there were the traditionalists among the, the Israelites. And they would say, let's go back to the old paths. And Joshua would say, hold on just a minute. Choose God. Because if you're going to go back and be a traditionalist, you're going to be a real conservative and you're going to trace our history out. Israel had had a long and sordid past with worshiping idols. The other side of the river, and you know what the text indicates? Something we don't see a whole lot in the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. It indicates that at least some of the Israelites, while in Egypt, were worshiping the gods of Egypt. Are you going to worship the real God exclusively or are you not? This is a, an emphasis upon the beginning of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. No other gods before me, etc. If you're going to really be committed, you're going to have to understand this is exclusive. It's an exclusive deal. Him... Or the non-gods. But you'd have the liberals. You would have the progressives among the Israelites, I'm sure, at that time. Okay, if you're not going to go with the, uh, the, the non-gods that, that, that our fathers traditionally have worshipped, the idols across the river back in Egypt too, how about the gods of Amorites? The Amorites, the ones, uh, the people in whose land you're going to be dwelling. Why don't you just go ahead and be culturally relevant? Why don't you just make a good a point and relate to others really well and, and, and go ahead and take on those gods because they're not gods either. You think that Joshua doesn't really speak to us today? There are some among God's people even now that really worship a God of tradition more than a God of truth. And there are those who worship a God who is culturally relevant and ever-changing with the times rather than a God who's real and stable and who blesses over and over. No wonder why the Bible would say, you have become obedient to that form of doctrine whereunto you were delivered, Romans 6, verses 17 and 18. It's an exclusive relationship. Real commitment is exclusive. You could look briefly at four words from verse uh, 14. Fear, serve, sincerity, truth. You may have words like fear, serve, and wholehearted desire. What God wanted then is still true of an exclusive relationship. Number three, look at this. Real commitment, verses 16 through 24, is total. All in. Everything the people say in verses 16 through 18. Let me read it again. 
Then the people answered. Remember what Joshua does now. He says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He throws down the gauntlet. He makes, he draws the line in the sand. And since it's Father's Day, here's one for fathers to chew on. Fathers need to be making decisions that as for them and their house, they will serve the Lord. And that will be a commitment that's exclusive and logical and total commitment on the part of our house to the Lord. Y'all can amen that if you want to. I'm sorry. Amen baptistry. Amen walls. Every now and then you got to make the point. But what he's saying now is stout. And perhaps the people of God today lack the commitment that Joshua's being as teaching here, talking about. That's so logical, so exclusive, so total. 16 through 18. I can hear brethren say the same thing. I know I said some of the same things myself and not really thought about it as fully as I should have. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It's the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did great signs in our sight, preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples to whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord. He's our God. There's not a thing about that, Jordan, that doesn't sound straight up, orthodox, as solid as it can be, biblically sound. And people would be amen in that one from the pew. That's what we're going to do. Right on. Now look at what he says. Joshua said to the people, you're not able to do this. <laughs> Imagine everybody coming forward and, and the preacher just saying, go back and sit down. Go back and sit down. Troy, you need to go back and think about this some more. Those young people come up at camp and you say, go back and sit down. And, and, if, and they, they do it, you know, they really weren't ready to make the commitment. Joshua says, you know, God's holy and just. But he will punish you if you think about making a superficial commitment when he has been so loving and gracious. That's what he says. Total commitment. Luke 14. Several times in Luke 14 verses 25 through 34, Jesus says, He cannot be my disciple. God must come first. A total commitment. Or we may not really be making a commitment that's biblical at all. Look at 25 through 33 with me. Real commitment is wonderful. Is wonderful. That's what the closing verses of Joshua indicate. Real commitment is wonderful. Here's what it comes down to. The people say, we are going to keep uh, God's word. We really do mean it. Joshua says, okay, if you're sure that you do, do you really, are you willing to be a witness to that effect? Yes, we are. All right. Now, here's what's awesome. 
A covenant is made between the people and God. There's really nothing like that in world religions. A God who stoops down to have a relationship with his creation. They make a covenant to stoop down. And you think about that because in Joshua, they're thinking about what Moses had done, what God had done, and bringing this point, how God had blessed them through Joshua's leadership. But when we think about it, we think about what God has done for us in Christ to have a relationship. The covenant that has been made by the blood of Jesus, Matthew 26, 28. And then he says, here's what I'm going to do. God's covenant is related in his law, in his word. He wrote these things in the book of the law. In one sense, there are five books of Moses plus Joshua. And by that I mean there's really six books. That the Pentateuch is a different number, six. Because... The promise is made in Genesis, but the land is gotten into in Joshua. If you really want to know the rest of the story. Where? At the beginning of this chapter and at the conclusion of the chapter, the town, the place where they were located, what was it? Israel is right, but more specific... Shechem. Jot down in your Bibles Genesis chapter 12 verses 7 and 8 because that is exactly the location that Abraham was when God made the promise to him. Just accidental, huh? It's also kind of accidental, Genesis 33, verses 18 through 20, that when Jacob decides that, you know, we're going to get rid of the idols and stuff like that that we've taken from my father-in-law, and and we're going to really try to make our lives right with God again, it was at a place called Shechem. And here at Shechem, what Joshua is pleading with the people to do is make a commitment that is common sense, real, logical, reasonable. You're all in that it is exclusive, that's total, and you will see how wonderful it is to have a relationship with our Creator and God. When you get to this section, though, you got three burials. Three burials. Joshua dies. He's 110 years old. But you think about the God that he had served and how God had blessed him. Second burial mentioned is the burial of Joseph. Now Joseph had been dead for a long time, hadn't he? At the end of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 50, the bones of Joseph were to be taken with God's people when they left Egypt. And they were. And they are buried at Shechem. God keeps His promise, Brother Lynn. 
Eliezer the prophet, the son of Aaron, dies. Talk about losing leaders. And he is buried too. High priest. But for a while, the people remember their commitment. During the days of Joshua and Eliezer, they remember their commitment. But what's the next book in the Bible? Judges. When one fails to keep their commitment, the sin that results. Now look at this as a summary verse. Micah 7 verse 18. Who is a God like you? There's no God like Him. They are non-gods that men have elevated to a position that's not theirs. One passage to look at. 1 John 5, 21. Turn there and the lesson is yours. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Be committed to the true God. We're about to stand and sing our song of encouragement. It may be that someone here needs to come to Jesus in faith, repentance, and baptism and to be added to the body of Christ. If you do now, please, is the time to do that. Think about it and your relationship with God, your commitment. And it may be that there's someone here that needs to renew their commitment to God. Other things have gotten in the way. Do not allow idols of the heart to keep you from the true and living God. Let us stand and sing.